Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. In October of 2020, I spoke with James Beard award-winning chef Ann Kim. Ann's restaurants in Minneapolis are Pizzeria Lola, Hello Pizza, and Young Joni. And when we spoke, the country was deep in the fight to expand SNAP, our food stamp program, to expand those SNAP benefits as part of the last pandemic stimulus package. Chef Ann helped us in that fight with a testimonial about her family's experience as Korean immigrants who at times received government assistance programs like food stamps. In this conversation, we discuss her immigrant background and the platform she now has to inspire people from underrepresented groups to achieve their dreams. We also talk with her about the Minneapolis community in the wake of the George Floyd murder. She offers insights into the pain, the fear, and the healing that is beginning to happen. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation about following your dreams and leading with love. For the second year in a row, Nutella is partnering with No Kid Hungry to give back this holiday season and connect kids across the country to breakfast. Through our partnership, Nutella will help connect kids with up to 6 million meals and still counting. You can pick up a special holiday-themed jar at your favorite grocery store or visit Nutella.com to learn more. Our guest today is Chef Ann Kim from Minneapolis. Folks know her from Pizzeria Lola uh, and Hello Pizza, most recently Young Joni. She's also a James Beard Award winner. I think the first woman and first person of color from Minneapolis to win the James Beard Award. And I think, Chef, you'll be able to tell me, but I think you've got a new restaurant in the works if it's not already open. But in any case, welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. There's uh, so many things I want to talk to you about because you have such a unique perspective as a Korean immigrant, as somebody who's living at a focal point of Black Lives Matter, as somebody who uh, is in an industry that has been so dramatically uh, hit by the pandemic. Uh, And I know, Chef, because I've had the uh, opportunity to watch uh, online a number of interviews uh, that you've given and speeches and so forth. I know you've told your story a number of times. I hope you haven't tired of telling it because I haven't tired of watching it, even though I've watched it uh, a number of times. It's a very inspiring story. So I'd like to just, you know, get to how you started cooking in the first place. And I know that like many chefs, your mother and grandmother played a really big role um, as you were kind of alongside them in the kitchen. But tell us how you came to be cooking and how you came to open up a restaurant in Minneapolis? Yeah, it definitely wasn't anything that I had planned or envisioned. Uh, I actually went to college uh, in New York and I was an English major and I worked in a large law firm for about a year thinking I would um, go to law school. And that never happened. I actually um, moved back from New York to Minneapolis to start my acting career, which seems a little bit ironic. Uh, but I was a professional actor here in the Twin Cities for about eight years. And I just decided at a certain point in my life that I wasn't happy with the direction of my career or where I was. I was actually pretty miserable. And I just decided, well, I have two choices. I can continue to live in misery or I can make a change. And so I decided to do the latter and, and make a change. And the reason I got into this profession was really just, it was cooking is something that I 
always loved to do. And I don't know if it was really a conscious decision, but when I wasn't working, I was cooking or I was entertaining or it always brought me a sense of comfort or um, relieved a lot of my stress because it was something that I really enjoyed doing. And it was something that I grew up with. Um, like you had mentioned, uh, we immigrated to this country in the late 70s. Uh, and my maternal grandmother, Sukyang, uh, also came with us uh, primarily to help my parents uh, raise myself and my sister while they worked multiple jobs, like most immigrant families. And she was the primary cook in those uh, early formative years. And we grew up with not a lot. We grew up pretty poor. Um, we did for a little bit um, live off of, um, you know, some public assistance. And uh, she was very resourceful. And oftentimes when it's about necessity, you're forced to be very creative. And my grandmother made do with very little. We had a garden in the summertime where she would tend to. She brought some seeds along with her um, and planted some things that she normally would never have been able to find in the produce section in the grocery store in the late 70s. She made everything from scratch because she couldn't go to the grocery store like we can today and find things like tenjang or gochujang, or even she made her own soy sauce. And I remember just being by her side, watching her and being fascinated and, and tasting, you know, she would have me taste things and I could differentiate when things were too salty or not salty enough. So it's sort of a part of my DNA, you know, um, making kimchi every fall. I remember that was that was a big, big event in our household. Um, every fall, we'd get hundreds of pounds of Napa from a, a farmer in Wisconsin, and we'd gather in the laundry room in the basement, and we'd use my sister and I's kiddie pool, plastic kiddie pool, as a bowl big enough to brine that amount of cabbage. <laughs> and just sitting there and helping my mother and my grandmother, um, and I perfected the kimchi squat at a very young age. <laughs> you know, brine and paste uh, the Napa and put it into jars. So we would have kimchi throughout the winter season. And, and that is just a big part of my memory. And when I decided I was going to shift and, and change careers, I just thought to thought about what brought me a lot of joy. And it was cooking. And once I figured that out, I really just decided to focus on one thing and do it really well. And one thing that I really missed um, and felt like I wasn't able to find was really great pizza. And so the rest is history from there. Um, I didn't go to culinary school. I had no uh, professional, I guess, formal training. I had never even worked in a restaurant, let alone wait a table. <laughs> I just, I just did it. I dove right into it. And, you know, sometimes when you've never done anything, you don't, know what you're getting into. And so ignorance was sort of bliss. And I just followed my gut and went for it. And, and here I am today, the rest is history. It doesn't sound like you have many mornings where you wake up and say, gosh, I wish I were a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that is one thing I, I wish for a lot of things, but that is one thing I do not wish for. <laughs> well, so I kind of wish I had followed your footsteps because I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I did want to go to law school. And I went to law school at night for four years while I was working. Oh, wow. And it was kind of a long, hard way to do it. Uh, and I, I loved the law just from kind of like an intellectually stimulating point of view, but I knew I wasn't, wasn't going to practice. Um, so I was a very relaxed 
law student, but uh, I might have, in retrospect, done what you did, which is just skip right over that and get to doing what I loved doing. Uh, and I don't know if um, you've ever counted the number of chefs who, and I've heard you say a number of times that your path was not uh, linear, it was not uh, traditional, that it was somewhat painful, but I don't know if you ever counted the number of chefs who um, had nonlinear paths. I think having that diversity um, of experience actually brings more to your craft. I think it makes you flexible and to look outside of, of sort of a, a narrow scope. Um, instead of having tunnel vision, you look at all sorts of different possibilities and um, perspectives. And I think that makes you a better chef. Uh, you spoke a moment ago about uh, when you were young, there was a, a brief period of time where your family was on food assistance. I'm assuming probably the SNAP uh, mm -hmm. program, what we used to think of as food stamps. Food stamps. Yeah. And uh, I know you made a very effective and compelling video for our No Kid Hungry campaign, for which we're we're really grateful because those personal testimonials are so important. And one of the things you just said even a few minutes ago, though, which is so important for most people to understand, is that uh, families, and this has been true for 30 years, families who uh, need to go on SNAP or food assistance are almost always on it for only a very short period of time. It's a bridge for a lot of families where something in the family has gone wrong. There's been some un un unanticipated expense or a health issue. But most families are only on it for a little while, and it can be a, a lifesaver. And that's one of the reasons that right now in real time, as we're having this conversation, we are fighting so hard to get the SNAP program expanded and extended with the level of unemployment that we've seen over the last few months. You know, we've done everything we can. And uh, I'm glad that you're able to, you know, talk about it from a, a firsthand point of view in terms of how valuable it was for your family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... We were not on it for a long time. I for I didn't even know we were on it um, until later in life when I realized, well, why would we go to this big industrial warehouse and go through boxes of produce and vegetables that were perfectly fine, but either um, grocery stores didn't want to sell it or, um, uh, you know, it was just sort of the ugly fruit and uh, it was one of the best days of the week for me. I thought it was always so awesome to go there. And I thought it was just something that all families did. Um, but really, when we came here, it was, my parents are very proud people. And I think most immigrants are very proud. And uh, when you come to a new country, and you don't speak the language, and you're just trying to start, and you're barely making minimum wage and multiple jobs, you need assistance. Um, and my parents, uh, I think part of why they didn't tell us about it is because they were, there was a, a shame associated, you know, for asking for help, but it helped us get through where we were able to get, um, you know, extra things on the table. So they didn't have to worry about paying the mortgage or paying the electrical bill or other things that we needed money to be stretched out. Uh, and, uh, you know, we weren't on it for a long time, but it did help support us and, and get us through. And I do believe that is the majority of people that, and, and in this day and age, like you said, food insecurity is at an all-time high with the uh, pandemic, people losing their jobs that thought they had job security. And all of a sudden, 
It's one of the highest unemployment rates that we've seen in, in years. And nobody expected this, right? I mean, people with college degrees that don't have jobs. And you never know when you're going to be without that check and when you might need that extra support. And now is the time really to think about what is important for us um, as a nation. Um, and it's, it's really about our biggest asset in, in, is, is people. And we need to keep people fed. And we need to keep children fed. Um, and uh, it's a really, you know, share our strength. No Kid Hungry is so important to me because I know the benefits of it firsthand. And um, it, it's, it's absolutely essential that uh, being one of the wealthiest nations in the world, if we can't keep kids fed, I mean, what... I mean, I get emotional. It's like, if we can't do that, what can we do? Right. I mean, I mean, it's absolutely number one. Yep. It's, it's the most, it's the most fundamental. One of the things that we've just been trying to really hammer home is that of all the problems we face, uh, in the, in the course of this terrible, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, hungry kids in America is the most solvable. You and I both, everybody knows this. We have no no shortage of food in this country and we have no shortage of food programs. No, there isn't. And that's the thing. There is no shortage of food, but how it's about access, right? I mean, we waste so much food in this country. It's, 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 it's pretty gross. And I just, you know, I grew up in a household where you wasted nothing. If you had a watermelon, you kept that, uh, the rind and you pickled it. Nothing went to waste. And so to see a country that produces so much and wastes so much is so sad to see kids not being able to have access to food, families not having access to healthy things when you know that it's being dumped somewhere. And it's, it's really about not saying we need to produce more, we don't have enough resources, we do. It's about giving them access. That is all. Glad you said that. And I'm glad we've touched on this because again, real time, as we're having this conversation, Congress is in the very last throes of what may be the last stimulus package. It may not happen before the election, but Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who's done a really unbelievably uh, effective job of supporting these programs has been um, negotiating with uh, the Treasury Secretary. There's some hope that there will be a last stimulus package that includes increased SNAP benefits. If not, uh, I'm sure it'll come shortly after the election. And one of the most important things people can do if you're listening to this conversation, think, how, how can I help? Uh, it's just the old-fashioned way of reaching out to your member of Congress, your senator, any federal legislator to say um, SNAP uh, is the most effective way we can solve childhood hunger. So um, I'm glad we've had a chance to talk about this. You know, I've, I've heard you talk about trying to tell personal stories through your food. And one of the things that I uh, heard in one of your interviews that I just loved was uh, you saying, I do believe that you can taste love in food. Uh, talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by that? How, do, how does young Joni, for example, uh, reflect that belief in telling stories through food and being able to taste love in food? Yeah, I mean, it seems a little cliche, um, but I really do believe it. And there is no room for hate in food, right? Um, uh, food is about nurturing. Uh, it's about taking care of people. It's about making people feel special and, and, and welcome. Um, it really is the great peacemaker um, throughout 
you know, anytime I've traveled, I've made connections through food. People are proud of the kind of food that they produce. And that's the way, you know, whether you speak the language or not, there's one thing we all have in common is we all have to eat, right? And you can share um, so much over um, by breaking bread over a table that you realize when you sit and you share stories over a, a dinner table that you have much more in common than you have um, differences. And I think that's part of why I got into this business is that growing up, we didn't have a lot, but the one time that I felt like we had um, plenty is at the dinner table. You know, my, my, because my grandmother and mother were such resourceful cooks, it always felt like we were eating like kings and queens, you know, and, and I realize that now. Um, and I wanted to bring that sense of hospitality, um, a sense of warmth, welcoming and nurturing to all my restaurants that, that I felt um, when I needed it the most when I was a child to be able to spend time with my family because we didn't get to spend a lot of time together. I didn't get to see my parents as often as I wanted to, but around the dinner table, it was a special time. So I realized that in this day and age, um, we're so busy, right? We, we glamorize busyness and and to be able to sit down and just take the time for someone to um, say I've spent time to to make this dish and it, it not it's it's first and foremost delicious but it's also representative a little bit about my history about what I care about and when I see a person light up after they take a bite and say I, I've never I don't recognize these flavors but it tastes so good it make and there's something about it that I just love I mean you can't replace that and so I like to say that when you walk into my restaurants from the moment you walk in that it feels like you're getting a giant hug from this, this, the smells that you smell, um, you know, two of my three restaurants currently are fired by uh, wood burning ovens and grills, and you can smell that aroma in the air. Um, you can smell the spices, and and I like to call it. You smell the sweetness in the air, and uh, you see the energy that's surrounded. Um, there's a certain kind of simpatico and flow when a restaurant is just working. Um, the, the way it should be. And it just feels good. And that's the way I want people to feel when they come in that they can leave their problems aside for a couple hours and and and, and come to a place where, where uh, someone else is taking care of them and and make letting them sort of escape for a while. And um, it you know, there's no, people have asked me, you know, what kind of food do you serve? Is it Korean food? Is it, is it I do pizza is my current wheelhouse? Is it Italian food? I just say, it's just really great food made with um, integrity and love. And the way I was raised, um, it was sort of an amalgam of being raised in the Midwest, uh, being able to use ingredients that were part of our terroir, but also being Korean and, 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 and creating food that was connected to my history and our heritage. And we just kind of created food with what we had. And you will recognize that when you step into any of my restaurants, there's a little bit of Korean, there's a little bit of Midwest, there's a little bit of global flavors, because those are the things that speak to me. And it's just great food made with love and care. I love the idea of the giant hug. What more could you ask for? And all of this culminated uh, your talent, your philosophy, um, the love that's built into your 
your food in a uh, James Beard Award, which was 2019. Is that right? Uh, oh man, I've lost all sense of time. Yes, a, a year from a, a year from this past May. Oh man. Well, and I, I and I watched your speech that night. It was quite emotional. Just what did it feel like to? get that award. It, it is the Oscar, you know, we call it the Oscars of food. What was it like for you? It seemed like you were really genuinely overwhelmed. I was. I, I mean, I honestly didn't expect it. I said it in my speech and I can't believe I said it. I, I, I went to the bathroom right before um, the award was presented thinking I'd have plenty of time. And uh, I... I literally, I, I had my speech in my hand. I had dropped it in the bathroom in the middle of actually removing my spanks because they were so tight. I couldn't breathe. And I was like, oh, you know, in the off chance that I do get up there, I want to be able to breathe. And I was a mess. And so much of it is a blur. You know, I think I was hyperventilating. And luckily I did have a backup. You know, my speech was written on my phone. So I brought that up there with me. But it was really not something I expected. And my husband, bless him, that morning, he said, you have a speech ready, right? And I said, no. And he said, why? And I said, because, you know, there's no chance. There's no chance in hell that I'm going to get this award. And he's like, well, there's uh, four of you. Uh, no, five of us. So nominated. So that means you have a 20% chance. So do you want to blow that 20% chance and say things that you don't mean to say? Or do you want to take this opportunity to say something that is meaningful to you? So that morning I sat um, in my hotel bed and just put some thoughts together. And thank God I did that. Um, because Apparently, it made an impact um, on a lot of people that still till this day reach out to me saying that your words really made a difference to me and it's making me relook at where I'm at in my life, whether it's about a career choice or what I thought I can or cannot do or what I should or should not do or because I'm a woman or because I'm a person of color or because it wasn't the traditional path or what was expected of me and thanking me. And it's like, damn it, like, thank God, you know, I did that that morning because um, I, if it could inspire even one person. And when I was thinking of that, I was like, well, what would five-year-old Anne want to hear, right? You know, this immigrant that felt awkward and strange and alienated, what would she want to hear? You know, if somebody, in, and I looked up and there was somebody that looked like me, that what would be inspiring? And that if I could touch one person, a, a little Anne out there that just happened to be listening to the Twitter live feed, you know, or something, um, you know, if that if that captured that person's imagination, that child's imagination to say, I can do this, I look like her, um, I feel like her, I can do this, then made all the difference in the world. And I try not to define myself by awards or accolades or reviews. I mean, those things are fleeting. Um, and nobody at the end of the day, at the end of the day, nobody really cares. And it's really about doing the job at hand. And it's really more about do the people that come through the restaurants love what I do? Do my team members, do my restaurant family believe in the kind of organization we've built? And are they proud to work for me? Can I 
go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and say, I'm proud of what I've built and I'm proud to go to work. That's what matters, right? So things like awards and of course, ultimately the James Beard Award was amazing, but that's just icing on the cake. And it's really a platform and an opportunity to do something that's bigger than you and make an impact and a difference if if you're given that opportunity. You're, You're such an interesting combination in this particular moment a chef who's an immigrant, a woman of color in Minneapolis, where Black Lives Matter had such a pronounced impact, not only in Minneapolis, but around the rest of the, the country. And you, But you've also talked about benefiting from white privilege. What did you mean by that? I heard that and I was really curious about how you were kind of internalizing that or experiencing that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated. You know, it's, you know, you can't fit any human into a category. We're all very unique in so many ways. And when all this went down after the killing of George Floyd and, and all the social unrest and, and, and the protesting and, and the riots, um, it was, there was a lot of noise out in the world and there was a lot of anger and, and many times, you know, rightfully so. And I completely support um, all the protests that were happening in in order to uh, bring attention to the social racial injustices that have been going on, uh, not just now, but for hundreds of years. And, People were literally screaming and people scream and they talk loud when they feel like they're not being heard. And I was trying to listen and I had a lot of conflicted emotions and, and people screaming here left and right and, and calling people out and saying, you should do this and this is how you should feel. And as a white person or as a business owner, this is what you should do. And this is what you should stand up for. And this is what you can't do. And in the middle of that, I wasn't sure where I fit into that spectrum because in some ways growing up here, uh, since I was literally five years old in um, the Midwest, in Minnesota, where it was predominantly white, I was heavily influenced, too, um, by uh, my my uncle is also white, and he sponsored our visas to come to the country. Um, I had bonus grandparents that in many ways helped my family assimilate because they knew that it would be challenging to be different. So they, in essence, encouraged us to take on all aspects of being white and growing up without other minorities or immigrants or other Koreans um, K through high school until I went to New York to go to college that I realized that I wasn't white, that I was actually Korean and that I was an immigrant with struggles and I fought my damnedest to fit in, to deny who I was because that was the only way I could survive and get through school as a child and most of my adulthood um, to basically not ruffle feathers, to basically put your head down and work hard. Um, Don't be the squeaky wheel. Um, just accept the way things are. And by doing that, I realized I was taking on, uh, you know, I was taking on a lot of um, 
the things that that I that were hurtful um, to me. I was taking on in order to protect myself, and I was also benefiting from that because I knew that if I didn't, um, it was going to harm me. And unfortunately, during that time, you know, during the most recent uh, social unrest this past summer, I didn't really know how to feel. Um, And it, it was hard when people were telling me how to act. And it was like, well, people don't really understand who I am. And I wasn't really quite sure how I was to react, except that I wanted to support the Black community, because even though I didn't know what they were going through, I did understand the challenges and the harm of systemic racism. Um, And I I tried to see, you know, where, you know, I might have been a part of that as well, and where my conflict came from, and, 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 and how my journey was affected, um, and how we could do things differently. Um, so we wouldn't have to live in this kind of world. So it's, it's even hard for me to articulate. It's, uh, you know, it's complicated, but it's not, you know, it's, yeah. Well, and, I, and I think for most of us, and I don't mean this as kind of a cop out or a, an excuse, but I think it's a, it's a work in progress. We don't get to a point where we say we have it figured out or we have it solved. Um, and it evokes a lot of uh, complicated uh, family history and community history. And there's a lot to sort through and there's just a lot to learn. One of my colleagues, uh, recently we were talking about uh, striving to achieve what's become a you know somewhat popular phrase of cultural competency. And she urged that we not use that because it suggests that you get to an end point of being competent. And I don't, I don't, I don't know that we ever do. I think the most we can do is, is, kind of to be open to continue to learn. But uh, as you're, as you're, you know, trying to articulate it, I get the sense that that journey is not complete for you as it's not for most of us. No, and it never, it it shouldn't ever be, right? I mean, it's a constant evolution. I mean, the only thing that's constant is time and it passes. And I thought a lot about it. And I thought about the history of uh, humankind. It's, I think it's always been this way and there's always a judgment rooted in fear. And I don't know if it's a way that humans protect themselves, but there is this judgment that if something or someone does not look or act like you, you are, it's inherently in you or you're taught to fear it. And that just is not the way it should be. And I do think that some of it is learned, some of it is enrooted in, in, in some of our DNA, but it is our job to make changes, to educate, to learn, to have understanding, because we can't make decisions rooted in the fear. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, that right now it's a scary time. It's an uncertain time. There's a lot of fear. The danger is, is when you make decisions and policies rooted in fear, right? Without really understanding the whole picture or the story or the complications. And that takes time and it's time well worth spent. You have to look at it as the long game and not the short game, which too many people are playing right now. Um, and it's going to affect generations and we might as we we have to we have to start now 
Um, and it's, it's a slow and progressive path. And oftentimes when I look at big issues or problems, um, and I think, oh my God, this is such a big mountain to scale. How do I do it? I become overwhelmed and don't want to even start. So I just look at it. You have to start somewhere you know, rock by rock, step by step, and you just start scaling, right? You look at the present moment and you make that difference and slowly you're going to chip away and you're going to get to the summit. But if you look at trying to get to the summit, you just, you freeze. So it is a progressive thing. Um, It is something that we have to work on and it is not something where there is an end. Um, It's a constant evolution. And Anne, knowing that this is just one person's perspective uh, and you can't speak for the whole community, what's your sense of the degree to which uh, healing in Minneapolis is is, uh, happening or not? Um, That's a difficult one. Um, It's hard to say, especially in this pandemic and this political climate. um, There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There have been bandages placed. Um, but that's only a temporary solution. Um, I think people are really, really longing for some change, um, not just lip service. And um, again, I can't think of it on a broader scale. I try to focus right now on what I can control. I try and not worry too much. And that's a challenge because I am Korean and I have a hell of a lot of Han. So I just try and focus on um, the things that I can impact and, 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 and the things that I can do to promote positive change. But I do think, you know, there are places where I do see some healing and and some understanding, but um, we've got a long ways to go. You just said, I am Korean and I have a hell of a lot of Han. What, what does that mean? <laughs> well, Han is kind of a hard thing to describe, I'm but it's... i myself here. Yeah. Han is a term that is used um, in Korean culture that is kind of worn like a... Uh, a badge that everyone carries with them. And it's not necessarily a good thing. The closest thing I can come to describing it is this like sense of longing, remorse, regret, constant struggle, this constant idea of being defeated. And I know this is very depressing, but that is what all Koreans have to some degree or other. And it's something that they've been carrying with them generationally. And that is kind of how Koreans live their lives. And it's, it's hard to explain to other cultures. But if you meet other Koreans, it's like, oh, yeah, there's the Han creeping up again. And in some ways, it makes us very resilient, because we feel like um, everything has been thrown at us. And that um, it's always a sense of kind of fighting and struggle. And because of that, you just keep fighting and you keep at it. So that's what I mean by Han. It's always sort of like glasses half empty, never half full, but you just keep forging forward because that's what you do. So on one hand, it's a, it's a great quality. And on another hand, it's, oh man, it's, it's a great burden. <laughs> it sounds like it could be. How do you spell it? H A is it H A N. Yes, look it up. You'll find a lot of information okay. around that. Right. Um, there is something that can come with experience that isn't always a positive thing, especially if they're rooted in bad habits, where you just the only excuse you use is, "Well, this is the way it's always been done." You know, so why would I do anything different? 
when you never really actually stop to question, well, just because you've done it that way, does it actually mean it's the best way or the most efficient way? And that's why I actually love hiring team members and leaders in particular that have either little to no experience, because in some ways, a lot of the experience they've had might have been toxic um, or detrimental to their leadership and growth. And so coming in when, you know, it's my number one priority or my number one criteria when I look for leadership in the kitchen or leadership in the restaurant is curiosity. And if you have that, it means you're um, a, that you love to learn. If you're a good student, it means you're ultimately going to be a good teacher. And good teachers ask really great questions. And that's where when you're inquisitive and curious is when you find solutions in places that you never thought. And so there's, there's always a set of technical skills that are, you know, important or can be taught, but you're talking about kind of an emotional intelligence in terms of curiosity. And is it something you, you, you know, right away when you see it? No, (laughs) you know, it's always a crapshoot. It's like, how do you really get to know a person in an hour long interview, right? Even to get to know somebody in a stage, because you're always going to put your best foot forward. Um, I like to think that I have sort of an intuitive sense. Um, I try to ask questions that um, aren't the cliche, like, what are your strengths and weaknesses, but actually ask like real, um, uh, real life questions of, of how they've acted before, or just tell me a story. Um, just um, ask, I ask them about their hobbies. I ask them if they vote, <laughs> you know, I don't ask what political lines they are, but just are they active and, and what do they do outside of their profession? Because I think what books do they read? Do they read? And those things offer me a lot more information about who they are and how they're wired than asking them real sort of questions that are related to the, the profession itself. And you're right. Um, those technical skills are things that I think if, if, you know, that those are things that you can teach by repetition, but it's that emotional intelligence that is far harder to teach. Um, I think if you have a willingness and an openness, it's easier, but that's something that is sort of rare. And when you find it, um, we try and invite them into our organization and, and really support that and, and, and nurture that. When I, Hire, you know, I used to, nowadays, you can't ask a lot of personal questions, which I always used to ask. But one of the things, and it's, it's somewhat similar to what you're talking about. I always used to feel like, and you know, it's not like I've always gotten it right, but I would always ask people to tell me what their mom and dad did and their siblings and stuff like that. And I feel like within a couple minutes of hearing the way people talk about their family, I have a sense of them that I need to have. And it's not that I'm looking for a Disneyfied, you know, Walt Disney version of a family or Norman Rockwell version of a family. It's just the 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 degree to which people talk about their family with authenticity, the good, the bad, whatever. And you know, if, if you're not going to be authentic in talking about your family, I don't know what else would lend itself to authenticity. So exactly, and it's really about. I think when I look for people to join our organization, you're not looking for perfection, right? Nobody's perfect. And if somebody presents themselves as being this perfect person, that's when I have to raise an eyebrow and think, I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're the best fit. So it's really about 
creating an environment where they they feel comfortable enough, like you said, to be authentic, to tell a story, because ultimately you want to get to the truth, right? Uh, you want to see how they're going to act under pressure um, because the restaurant industry is definitely, there's pressure every day and it's stressful. And so you want to see um, who they really are. And so asking just those questions and getting to know them um, on that uh, sort of as personal of a level as you can um, is the way to go. Last thing, have you got a uh, a new restaurant uh, opening up or has opened? I do. We're working on it. I don't know. It's uh, I never planned on opening a restaurant in the middle of the pandemic, but you know, it's just the way it's been timed out. There was a point in time when we thought about walking away, but um, we realized that the uh, risks involved with that, uh, the losses involved with that were going to be far greater. So we're forging ahead. We hope to open sometime in November. The restaurant is Suki and Mimi, uh, named after my maternal grandmother's nickname, Sukyang Suki and Mimi, who I talked about a little bit, my sort of bonus American grandmother and sort of uh, um, influences from both. And we'll be focusing on the craft of um, handmade tortillas and um, food that just tastes really good around that. <laughs> well, everybody in this pandemic needs something to look forward to. And I think Suki and Mimi is it. I hope so. I really hope so. I hope so too. Good luck with that. Uh, thank you so much. Congratulations on being such an important force in the community and such an inspiration to so many of us. And uh, I got to just say thank you again for your commitment to Shar Strength's work and the No Kid Hungry campaign and for being a, the spokesperson and the generous uh, supporter that you've been. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And I will always be a supporter of this until every child has enough food. So absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking to Chef Ann Kim from Minneapolis. Her restaurant is Young Joni and soon uh, Suki and Mimi, also Pizzeria Lola and Hello Pizza. James Beard Award winner. Really a pleasure to have you on chef. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. You can go to our uh, website, addpassionandstir.com and find previous episodes with other equally impressive chefs and restaurateurs and those in the culinary community. You can rate us and rank us and share with your friends. Uh, thanks to the whole team at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, to Kelly Griffin, who does so much work on this podcast, and to our producers at District Productive. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.